please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this journey we've had as to be the disciples you've called us to be in this letter of 1 Peter. And as we wrap it up today with the message of true grace and true glory, I ask that you would spur us on in any way possible, Lord, to know you and to follow you with wholehearted devotion as your people. You would take our minds now and think through them. You would take my lips and speak through them. That you would take our wills and bend them to your own and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Tradition has it that Peter was martyred by inverted crucifixion. If this is true, then we can say that Peter's longed hope for exaltation, that is, his entrance into glory, came after one brief and final season of humiliation. In the end, for the Apostle Peter, heaven's inheritance was gained only after a crucified head downward upon earth. So, ironically, according to Christian faith, the way always up is always by going down first. It is the, this inversion in attaining glory and honor that has been Peter's theme throughout this letter that we started on kickoff Sunday in September. The Christian's future, inheritance and exaltation, our eternal share in the glory of Christ, will be answered to us in the day of Christ's appearing. But that promised day only comes after this brief season of present day sufferings, and we all will endure them. Suffering always precedes subsequent glories. It was so for Jesus Christ. It will be for his followers. Clearly, this bringing together of two seemingly incompatible truths, our status in Christ and our sufferings on earth, was how Peter's letter began. You remember in chapter 1, verse 1, to those who are elect exiles. And in the body of the letter were those incompatible ideas continually enjoined to one another. Chapter 1, verse 3 through 6, we saw that an eternal inheritance is linked to various trials. Chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, we found that we can be both God's chosen people and sojourners. And just in case Peter's early readers had trouble grasping this truth, he went so far as to argue that Jesus Christ was the ultimate example of this teaching. And later he put forward King David, the anointed one, who suffered as an encouragement for his readers to press on. And finally, at the end of chapter 3, he grounded the irony of all this divine logic in the demonstration of Christ's ultimate vindication as proof of our future hope and present calling. So is it any wonder, then, that this union with, with Christ in union with subsequent sufferings, is how Peter chose to end this letter? The divine principle of true grace truly is this. Our future inheritance arrives by the way of present sufferings. 
Eternal glory comes after earthly sufferings. The bookends of this last paragraph press the point home with crystal clear clarity. Verse 6 of chapter 5, humble yourselves therefore so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Verse 10, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is the apostolic principle of true grace at work. This life is anything but your best life now. If you have that book, burn it. I got a fireplace. Give it to me. I'll do it for you. All right? It's not true. It's not true. Glory comes by the way of the ground. The attainment of heaven will be by the way of an excruciating journey at times. We will receive heaven's gains by denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus. It's a counterintuitive gospel logic, I know. But it's so desperately needed in the church today, probably nowhere more than in America. It is a lesson that every affluent generation must come to grips with early on in life. We must get this lesson right, no matter how old we are. For only then will we be able to get on with the task Peter calls us to which is a hopeful, productive, and submissive life following Jesus Christ. Therefore, I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. You can also find it in the back of your bulletin. We're going to focus primarily on verses 6 through 14. Verses 1 through 5 are addressed to our vestry, to me, yours truly, to all our little church team leaders that we leave out of humility, recognizing that Jesus is the bishop of our souls. But then chapter 6 goes to the entire church. And what we learn in this passage is, number one, the divine commands and encouragement that this such a life gives us. He repeats that command. We then learn God's response to such demands and sufferings that we endure. And then he closes with a great exhortation. So let's go there. First, divine commands and encouragement that our Lord gives us. Because the natural question is, how can I live this way? How can I live in this true grace knowing that life is so hard at times in Christ? Well, Peter knows. Take a look at the symmetry of which he closes his letter. He gives the church two couplets. Both stated in the form of a command, and when you take them together, they're rather daunting. Fulfilling each one will demand discipline, hardship, and suffering, but, and here's where Peter shines, each difficult command is followed by and finishes with a beautiful word of encouragement. Verse 6 and 7, the first couplet, humble yourselves, God cares for you. Divine command. Encouragement. Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Christians are commanded to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. 
that's, that's tough. Everything within us wants to rise up and resist such a thought. We're taught that glory comes to those who aggressively make their own way in the world. That's our culture. And in fact, we're taught at an early age that if we don't get tough with people, we won't learn how to navigate relationships in this world. But Peter has another way. You know, Peter knows what it's like to be steamrolled. He's aware that meeting the demands of true grace will not be easy. So he follows on the heels of the command with words that are meant to encourage to keep from running the opposite direction. Look at the second half of verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. In seasons of humiliation because of your faith in Christ, it is good to know that God cares for you. Yes, anxiety and grief are present. But remember, God is near too. And Peter wants to give us that encouragement to pour out our hearts before God in the light of the knowledge of his concern. George MacDonald, the great Anglican minister and poet, had a mother who taught him how to do poetry. She wrote a poem, a written prayer in 1820, which reads, We come, dear Jesus, to thy throne to open all our grief. Now send thy promised mercy down and grant us quick relief. Though Satan rage and flesh rebel and unbelief arise, we'll wait around his footstool still, for Jesus hears our cries. Friends, we cast our anxieties upon the one who hears, and he does. This is Peter's words of encouragement for people who are called to a life that's marked with humility, not arrogance. Second point, that we're called, second couplet in these divine commands is we're, is really a triplet um, form. It's be sober-minded, watchful, and resist, verses 8 and 9. These commands are embedded in Peter's rich personal history. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, Peter had gone with him to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Jesus said, stay here, pray. I'm going to go over here. So Jesus is over there pouring his heart out to the Heavenly Father, getting ready for what he's about to do, literally bleeding blood. And what does Peter do? Falls asleep. His mind wasn't ready for the battle. His body wasn't prepared to be watchful. And as a result, he was ill-equipped for the temptation that was to come upon him. And so in the words of Jesus' tender rebuke, Peter first heard the commands he now presses along to us. Jesus said, Simon, why are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Desiring better for us than he was able to achieve for himself, Peter calls upon the night of his failure to commend sober-mindedness, watchfulness, and spiritual resistance. Why? Verse 8, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The biblical realities of the enemies at work and Peter strikingly likens the devil to a, a lion getting ready to pounce upon us. 
He chooses the image that the Bible regularly uses to refer to Jesus himself. Satan is that great, powerful, but cheap imitation of our Lion of Judah, Jesus. And C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, if you haven't read them, you need to, Shift the Ape begins to take all the earthly glory for himself. And you really feel for his sidekick, Puzzle the Donkey, who Shift just bullies the whole time. It's terrible. And so having come across an old lion's skin, Shift sews it together into a cumbersome costume and parades Puzzle around in it, getting the woodland creatures to think that it really is Aslan. He says, Puzzle, come try on your beautiful new lion skin coat. Puzzle responds, Oh, bother that old skin. I'll try it on in the morning. I'm too tired tonight. Shift says, You're so unkind, Puzzle. My dear Shift, said Puzzle, getting up at once. I'm sorry. I've been horrid. Of course, I'd love to try it on. And look, it looks splint, simply splendid. Do, try it on me at once. Please do. Well, stand still then, said the ape. The skin was very heavy for him to lift, but in the end, with a lot of pulling and pushing and puffing and blowing, he got it onto the donkey. He tied it underneath the puzzle's body. He tied the legs to puzzle's legs and the tails to puzzle's tail. A good deal of puzzle's gray nose and face could be seen through the open mouth of the lion's head. The narrator says, comically, no one who had ever seen a real lion would have been taken in for a moment. But if someone who had never seen a lion looked at Puzzle in his lion skin, he might just mistake him for a lion if he didn't come too close. And if the light didn't, was not so good, and if Puzzle didn't let out a bray, and he did not make any noise with his hoofs. You look wonderful! says the ape. If anyone saw you now, they'd think you were Aslan the Great Lion himself. Later on in the story, King Tyrion under the night sky saw the pretend lion for who he really was. Quote, Then the yellow thing turned clumsily round and walked, you might also say waddled back into the stable, and the ape shut the door behind it. Shift manipulates puzzle to pull off the impossible. And so it is with Satan. He's a cheap imitation of the great lion. So don't be overcome by the fact that he prowls around like a roaring lion. Remember his true self. He's nothing more than a stubborn and rebellious donkey. Living out his rebellion against God. Therefore, take heart. Resist him, stand firm in your faith, says Peter. Don't be overcome by this imitation ruler. The great lion, Jesus, demands all your allegiance, and in this, know that you're not alone in this world. Knowing that by the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced, chapter nine, verse 9, are being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. You are to cast all your cares upon God because he cares for you. And now you should be encouraged because we got brothers and sisters in Nigeria who are going through exactly the same things we're going through. 
What an uplifting word for those early outpost churches. Amen? What, what, what an uplifting word for us that around the globe we have brothers and sisters sharing this battle with you. The great English preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I would have been dead long ago if I depended upon men for encouragement. Thank God we don't need to depend upon people. God has seen fit to encourage us with his word. Thank God. Number two, the divine principle is then repeated. Verse 10. And after you've suffered a little while, this God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. True grace looks like this. Present sufferings are intimately connected to eternal glory. The one always precedes the other. Peter repeats this here to fix it forever in our hearts and minds. And to encourage us with the promise that God will see us through. God will one day bring us home. We will suffer for a little while. But then we will gain eternal reward and glory. Therefore, Peter has chosen to end this letter, not with suffering and submission, but with our salvation. We're to go forward each day in the light of that somewhat present now, but one day fully realized hope that we have in Christ. Our prayers should mimic St. Patrick, who wrote, I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's host to save me from snares of devils, from temptations and vices, from everyone who will wish me ill and afar and near, alone and in multitude. So we got it now, Peter. Thank you very much. You said it twice. We get it. True grace is present suffering, intimately connected to eternal glory. And God is with us. But then he gives us God's divine actions on our behalf. He finishes the letter with this forceful flurry of verbs, all actions taken by God for us. He writes, the God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Wonderful verbs. Completely be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. The word restore is also translated mend. It was the same verb used when Jesus came to Peter as Peter, James, and John were mending their nets. Okay? Restoring. Peter knew more than most what this meant. And now he uses it to speak what God will do for each and every one of us. He will mend us. He will attend to us. He will make us whole. He helps us to stand up on our two own feet. For that's what confirm means. He will strengthen and establish us. Those final verbs are, are terms that echo Peter's earlier teaching that we're being built up into the spiritual house of God. When we arrive at heaven's gate, we will be his dwelling. So our response to that wonderful restoration 
Verse 11 is to give him glory. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What else could come from the lips of someone who's gone through such a life? In all our sufferings, in all our trials, his eternal glory is manifest and his grace is fully known. His dominion will carry on forever. It will never be extinguished. It will never be snuffed out. Throughout centuries, Christians have understood their sufferings in light of what is being accomplished through his eternal dominion, despite any suffering we endure. Bishop Hugh Latimer knew this well. I've shared it often, but it, it makes the point again, as he and Latimer were tied to the stake on October 16, 1555. <laughs> the flames were coming up. And he cried out, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. For this day we shall light a candle in England by God's grace that will never be put out. Those were the final words of a suffering man who wanted nothing more than to die while giving adoration to God. It was enough for him to know that what happened to him on that day would accomplish the purposes of God's unextinguishable and everlasting dominion. As it was for Latimer, it was for Peter, and it is for you and me. We're built up as he unfolded our exalted identity. We looked on as he exhorted us to engage in gracious living. We were encouraged to continue in the light of Christ's ultimate vindication. And we have been reminded to embrace our calling to submission and suffering until he comes again and takes us home. Thus, he finishes and gives us one final exhortation. Verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, that's another word for Rome. That's ancient Jewish smack talk. All right. Who is likewise chosen... Sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Hey, the gospel of Mark, there he is. These are real people, all right? So does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter exhorts them and us in declaring the meaning of the true grace of God, that true grace which is the mystery union that joins suffering to glory. This present day with being born again to a living hope, which we start in chapter 1. Susanna Wesley, mother of John and Charles and 17 others, God bless her. Her father was one of the ministers who was ejected by the Act of Uniformity, 1662. It was awful. It was awful. She knew a thing or two about suffering. And seeking rest in the coming kingdom of God. She's buried in London's famous Bunhill Cemetery. And the words on her gravestone provide us a fitting closing to end Peter's letter with. Ensure and certain hope to rise and claim her mansion in the skies. A Christian here, her flesh laid down, the cross exchanging for a crown. 
that's you. That's me in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for Peter. Thank you for what we've learned this year, that it's true grace and true eternal glory that we have in you. We have a semblance of it now, and it will be fully realized one day. We thank you for giving us this picture, Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you would give us the grace to finish well. In our trials, grant us patience. In our suffering, grant us your joy. May we know what it is to share in Christ's suffering. All for your glory, Lord. And we thank you for Peter that knew what this was all about. May we walk in his shoes well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.